Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports and the internationally traveling Chris Russo. I am. I'm I'm down in Argentina, have been able to watch one game, a World Cup game down here, hopefully seeing another one this afternoon. And it's pretty amazing to be in a country that has a real shot at winning the whole thing. No cars on the streets during the game. Everybody focused and see how it turns out. It's a real interesting cultural view and one that we don't necessarily see all the time in the United States, even as big and powerful as something like the NFL is. That's a real interesting look inside the culture there. Yeah, it's almost like a bunch of Super Bowl Sundays here as you lead up to the potentially final game. So pretty exciting. Well, a lot happening in and around the industry, particularly as we make the final sprint of the year and head towards the holiday break. We've got some big news with the global sports merchandising giant Fanatics. The hot stove season in Major League Baseball that I referenced a couple of weeks ago is very much alive and well. And some interesting developments in and around the owner and operator of the Bally Sports Regional Sports Networks. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Matt Gibbons from Manhattan West. Very interesting private equity firm that is making some real moves in and around the sports industry. So we're going to have a conversation with Matt. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Matt Gibbons, Managing Director of Private Equity at Manhattan West. The California-based firm this year has become highly active in the sports and entertainment space, first acquiring a majority stake in the Formula One exhibition, an international traveling exhibition and immersive experience concept involving the motorsport series, and then forming a new PE fund focused on sports, media, and entertainment. The new fund joins a still-growing bevy of other investment vehicles also targeting the sports industry and will seek to leverage what Manhattan West sees as a differentiated approach for itself. Gibbons joined Manhattan West in 2019 after holding an extensive track record in the financial world, and he previously held senior-level positions with the Sabin Capital Group and Holhan Loki. And among his duties as Sabin was managing that firm's key investment in Univision Communications, which is now part of the Televisa Univision Empire and Spanish language media. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Really appreciate being on with both of you today and having a great conversation. So I gave sort of a high level there of your sort of career background here, but maybe if you could just to get us started here, sort of embellish on your career journey and sort of how we got to this specific point where Manhattan West is elected to form this new sports-oriented fund. Yeah, happy to do so. As I reflect back over some of the moves I've made in my career, I think I've been very fortunate in terms of being able to develop a lot of experience and relationships in relatively quick order. You know, my time at, at Hulahan Loki was really marked with doing a, you know, more than a dozen or two dozen deals in a wide range of industries, really focused on that lower middle market expertise working with a great team, doing a lot of different types of transactions, whether that be in the public markets and IPOs or hostile takeovers to more of the run-of-the-mill sell-side, buy-sides, and really spending a lot of time learning about a lot of different niche industries in the media and entertainment world, and really wanting to take that and then transition over to join uh, Haim Saban at Saban Capital Group, really the single family office, who has 
you know, quite the extensive track record as a media mogul, building fantastic franchises and really rolling up his sleeves as a, as a really hands-on operator, building multi-billion dollar businesses, both domestically and internationally. Obviously, he's a little bit of a claim to fame of Crane Power Rangers and building that into the global phenomenon that it was in the 80s and 90s and Univision, as you mentioned, and, and stuff, and again, in Germany and Israel and here in the States. And really, as I spent my time with Haim and the team in the media, entertainment and consumer world and really touching the sports angle in, in various forms and fashions, what I gravitated towards and what I saw was the most alpha that we created was in that lower middle market, right? The ability to take a deep Rolodex and not just provide capital but really expertise and relationships to fantastic business models in those lower middle market companies. That's where I saw the most opportunity. And then what I've leaned further into now joining Manhattan West. Matt, if you would share a little bit with the audience, a snapshot of the fund, how big is the fund? Are the key investors mostly institutional, family offices? You mentioned celebrities. Give us a little bit more detail on the sports fund. Yeah, exactly. Look, so our inaugural private equity fund. Uh, it's a sub $100 million fund. And the vision there is to be disciplined in terms of our size and therefore our approach. So we wanted to be small. We want to take really strong positions, but we want to be focused in those lower middle market companies that we can have the resources, the bandwidth, and the focus to, again, get involved and add value. So our LP base is a mixture Probably about 60-70% is coming from our internal network here at Manhattan West, where I can elaborate more on our firm as a whole. But my vision and why it's to some degree a GP dream come true to come and do what we're doing at Manhattan West is the Manhattan West ecosystem consists of hundreds of clients that are predominantly high net worth individuals in the media, entertainment, and sports world. We have professional athletes celebrities, musicians, entertainers, people in front of the camera, behind the camera, media executives, former Fortune 500 media executives. That's our clientele network. So that makes up a lot of our LP base for our private equity fund. And then we marry that with obviously fantastic single family offices, other wealth management firms, RIAs, a lot small institutional capital that is really partnering along with our extensive client network to pursue the strategy that we're pursuing. So that's the vision of the firm and the fund. And really, again, taking, writing those five to $25 million check sizes into fantastic lower middle market companies that we can add value to and really offering LP co-invest on each of those deals as well, which again, from our perspective is exactly what we want. We want our LPs to get excited by our investments, to partner alongside these companies, sit on advisory boards, roll up their sleeves, add value, sometimes be consumer facing. And that's really the vision of both why we have that type of LP network and how that influences the types of deals we're looking to do. So just following on Chris's question, as you've been doing all of this, certainly there's some economic headwinds out there and concerns about inflation and so forth. What was it like to raise capital and pursue this vision given the current circumstances? And what did you sort of learn along the way as you were raising this capital? Yeah, I mean, to your point, we launched our fundraising efforts in the heart of COVID. And I think that obviously presented significant headwinds in, in various forms and fashions, the, not the least of which is just meeting with people. I think, you know, what really developed and allowed us to really resonate with the market and our client base and third party capital was as we got deals done, 
And as we did deals like our Formula One exhibition deal, which some people might have thought we were crazy thinking that the world was going to open back up and people were going to go buy tickets to an exhibition and, and a live show like this. But we had conviction on the tailwinds that we continued to believe in the, in the sector. And now that we've done those investments and as we were kind of, if I can say, you know, coming out of COVID a little bit or having at least more of it in the rear view mirror, more of our clients resonated at a higher frequency of realizing, wow, these guys are on to some really great businesses. They've done what they said they were going to do, even during some of the worst of the, you know, the economic uncertainty that existed. And then they're only partnering with great businesses and proven business models that kind of avoid some of that hit driven nature. I think that's key to our mandate. We love cash flow. We're always looking at cash yield. We're looking at how we can grow EBITDA, how we can help entrepreneurial businesses take it to the next level, but do it with defensive business models that aren't necessarily like, you know, that still have the growth upside. And I think that was key as we did deals in that space and proved out the thesis that just resonated with more and more and brought in more and more capital to our strategy. Matt, you mentioned the check sizes potentially ranging from 5 million to 25 million. Are those mostly for LP stakes? In certain cases, you'll do control transactions. How do you think about where you want to sit from a control perspective? And then, you know, sort of more broadly, what stage are these mostly later stage? Are they growth stage? Just how do you think about the sweet spot for you guys in terms of those characteristics? I think we're very unique in how we fit in that ecosystem. And it makes it hard to fit us maybe squarely in one bucket. At the end of the day, we're really doing growth equity for the most part. A lot of our capital we deploy is primary capital into these companies, helping them grow. But that being said, we definitely have a private equity mindset. And what I mean by that is we're taking large ownership positions and all of our portcos, we are the largest shareholder. So we are taking an institutional level approach to having a seat at the table being able to roll up our sleeves alongside a really strong management team. And we do that. So not necessarily taking control and demanding that we're in the driver's seat by any means. We only back strong management teams that we feel have a very strong vision of what the business is going. But then we also are just, you know, we're taking multiple board seats. We're adding value. We are frequently talking with management, putting institutional best practices to work figuring out with advisory boards how we could knock down doors for that team on a weekly basis, if you will. So it's very hands-on, very value-add in our approach. It's not the type of investing where we don't want to write a check and then say, call us in five years, tell us what it's worth. We want to write a check and say, how can we help tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And I think our ownership positions vary. Our largest one is roughly 85% ownership positions and our smallest is about 35% ownership positions. So we're not afraid to take a more majority ownership uh, position, but again, always focus on strong management teams that we can supplement as opposed to displace by any form or fashion. As you're doing all of this, of course, there's a wide variety of other investment vehicles and firms of various types also targeting the sports industry. What do you see is particularly your differentiation amidst all of those other entities looking to do more in and around sports? I think it's a very good question. And we try to be differentiated as much as possible. And I think that comes in a couple different buckets. One, we try to go downstream. So we're trying to do lower middle market. I think we like to say, you know, one of the sayings I like to tell to our LP is we really want to fly below the radar, but punch above our weight class. And what that means is we don't want to be competing with big private equity firms. We don't want to be and call it big four team ownership positions, but there's a lot of capital pursuing. 
we really want to focus on maybe niche sectors in the sports ecosystem that we think we can still back market leaders, but are really benefiting from tailwinds that are happening in the sports ecosystem, but maybe avoiding some of the other frothy areas that have happened over the years. We want to do that while still punching above our weight class in terms of the value add, where we want to be able to do the small deals, but we want to do it with the sophistication, the best practices, the LPs, the network, and the relationships that can really move the needle on those investments. So, you know, we have therefore steered more away from maybe team ownership positions and focused a lot more on other niche areas like our Formula One investment, which is really a live entertainment exhibition business that is developing a whole new revenue stream, really, at the end of the day for the F1 brand. So we don't have any competition in what we're doing in that business or, you know, even niche sports leagues or other areas that we like the ability for that business model to own a fan, monetize in multiple different revenue buckets, not necessarily be tied down to what the media rights might look like, but really what are other areas and ways to create cash flow at the end of the day from that sports fan base in a way that you know a lot of other sectors within sports don't do. Matt, we've seen in the team space, but really in some of these other areas as well, whether the media space, the emerging league space, a tremendous amount of capital come into the sports sector from private equity in the last sort of three to five years. What do you think is driving that at a, at a high level? You know, look, man, I think obviously a lot of the sports leagues have opened up more to private equity. I think they've a lot of the teams have realized that sports teams and franchises have grown such so consistently and so much hand over fist over you know the decades really. You have to open up the buyer universe to some degree in order to figure out who the next owners are. It's hard for some of the billionaires to take down teams on a standalone basis. So I think there's been great demand for private equity. They've seen the reliable nature of sports franchises going up and to the right over the decades. I think there's you know maybe some headwinds there as well as the buyer universe has opened up. There's also other elements of the buyer universe going away. If you want to talk about cable and cord cutting and how that what's that going to have the impact on media rights over the long term. But I think that's been probably one of the biggest influxes of private equity or even I'll just call them SPVs being able to be put together where high net worth individuals want to own a piece of a large sports franchise has really resulted in a lot of capital and a lot of appreciation and value in that segment of the market. I want to drill down a little bit more specifically on your F1 exhibition investment. These are obviously boom times for F1 writ large and a lot of influx coming in in terms of greater television audiences, new events, particularly here in the United States. But this particular investment that you've done, what made it so attractive and where do you see that particular effort going? I think there was a lot of things that made it really attractive to us. I mean, on a macro level, when we first started getting involved with the company just under two years ago, what we really resonated with before a lot of the run-up that F1 has had here in the United States is we looked at F1 as a sport and said, you know, this is one of the biggest sports in the world, right? This is a top five, if not top two, in terms of sports fandom engagement and how it resonates on a global basis. But it's a very hard sport to access. There's a lot of scarcity value here in terms of, you know, especially at the time, only having 22, 23 races a year, each race capped at no longer than two hours. 
you know, you're only talking about, you know, 40, 50, maybe 60 hours of really high quality media content a year for that sport, for that fan to engage with. While, you know, not to name drop, but there's other sports where there's 50, 60 hours of media content every weekend. Right. And I think, you know, trying to think through how does a fan engage with this fantastic sports franchise? It's a sport that's really hard to physically engage with, just given the limited number of races, the high price point demographic that exists. This management team really developed a relationship with F1 corporate where F1 came to them and they were originally almost consultants and saying, how do we fix this? How do we create a whole new way for the fan to touch and feel our sport in a new immersive and tangible way? And that's where these guys, you know, really developed the F1 exhibition thesis of saying, let's take the sport to the fans, to the biggest cities of the world in a whole new way, in a spectacle that is immersive and talking about the history of the sport, the evolution, the 80 year just track record of the world's greatest motorsport, bring that meat to the fan while also marrying it with the experiential, the immersive, let them feel what it's like to be at a starting grid at, right next to the pit wall, hugging the turns of Monaco in a race car, things like that. That's what really resonated with us. I think we've been very lucky to be have done that right with the tailwinds really taking off with the F1 sport here in the United States. And the fact that ESPN and you know the rights are up you know, 19, 20 times in the last couple of years and Miami and Vegas and Austin just setting record numbers. And the list goes on in terms of the areas where we are really happy and lucky to be partnered with Formula One at this time. And it really is a partnership in a lot of tangible ways. But those are the things that, you know, at a high level, what really got us excited, let alone the cash yield nature of the business model and things like that, that we wanted to take a big bet and partner with both Formula One and this management team on what they're doing. Matt, how about emerging areas like betting, Web3? Both those areas have had their ups and downs, certainly from a valuation standpoint. How do you look at some of those emerging sectors? And there probably are some growth equity opportunities within those, although a lot of it's venture. How do you see those areas? It's a hard area for us just because one of our guide rails really is proven business model that can create cash flow. And I think, you know, so the angle for us is we have to find a niche area within those subsectors that has that capability that we feel has long-term stability and its ability to, you know, it's a lot of abilities there to create cash flow. So I think that's key for us. You know, we believe in there's tailwinds that are there, obviously. On the crypto NFT side, you know, we look for vendors and partners that can maybe come in with our F1 exhibition as an example, where we have memorabilia, we have digital content that we have access, we've created that is unique and maybe unseen by the modern era that are ways that we can help monetize in a digital format, whether that be NFT or anything else. So I think there's areas that we will look to lean into it. But I think in terms of a core business model, it's a pretty high hurdle for us to step in directly into those categories. You mentioned some of the team stakes in the big four leagues, and, and you sort of addressed your position there, but sort of maybe a little lower in terms of the pyramid of sports leagues. There's a lot of emerging properties right now, whether it be volleyball, lacrosse, pickleball, the list goes on and on. Could we see Manhattan West get involved in some of those entities? 100%. Yeah, we, we've looked at a lot of niche sports leagues historically. And I think, you know, our approach to them is especially to your point, as you just name dropped a few of them, the ones that can own a sport in many ways, right? Where they are the authority on the sport. They're where the, how the fan engages with the sport. 
And if they can do it in a way that, again, has a 360 approach to really create that little fiefdom that they have in that sports property, and with maybe the upside being media rights, where it's not going to make or break the value proposition of whether or not they get covered on a certain network for a certain amount of dollars, I think that's where we get most excited. So and that's where we can also add a lot of value as we think about building a brand from our team's track record and our client's ability to be able to, whether it's even plug and play a celebrity or have other elements of our network that can really add value to a nascent sports league. I think that's a really interesting way that we constantly are looking at that sector and could very easily make some big investments in the coming years in that area. Matt, as you think about your portfolio overall, how much of it do you expect to be U.S. focused versus international? And do you have potentially a different kind of strategy or set of criteria as you may think about international-based businesses? I think the business has to have a U.S. angle. So it has to have either a uh, proposition of it's coming from the United States and exporting overseas or vice versa. And that's really just because it's where most of our relationships are, right? If we're thinking about where we can add value, I think if we look at certain other territories, we just don't have the relationships there enough to have the conviction that we would want to have. But you look at something like Formula One, and that's obviously one that that fit that mold of our original thesis there was let's stay over in Europe and, and overseas for the first couple of years. Let's really monetize where the core fan base is over in Europe. And then we quickly found, well, look, the core, not, not the core fan base, but a very, very quick growing fan base is now here in the US. So we really accelerated our plans and are bringing it now to the United States on a much earlier timeline in a much more comprehensive way than maybe what was originally anticipated. There was always the vision of coming in the United States and having a US presence there, but our ability to really fast track that is an angle of that's the sort of deals that we'll like of where we can see something in Europe and we want to bring it over the United States in a more tangible way. Or again, it's something that we're exporting overseas. Well, a lot happening in and around Manhattan West. We're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Matt Gibbons, our managing director of private equity for spending this time with us. Yeah, I really appreciate the time and look forward to talking to you more. We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Matt Gibbons again from Manhattan West for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week, you know, we'll start with Fanatics here. This is a company led by Michael Rubin that we talked so much about this year, last year, and on and on. They're seemingly always making moves. Well, they've made yet another one with yet another capital raise. They did a big one back in the spring that at the time pushed their value to $27 billion. They've raised now another $700 million, this time pushing their company valuation to about $31 billion. And very much an opportunistic move. Didn't need the money. Obviously, this is a business uh, continuing to grow. They've brought on Mitchell and Ness. They've brought on a number of other businesses. They've acquired a number of trading card rights, obviously looking at betting. On and on the list goes here. But this was a situation where there was an opportunity here for an extra jolt of capital to really push that opportunistic M&A here. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to comment on the $31 billion valuation because the numbers start getting mind-numbing as they yes. get up there but think about <laughs> about 31 billion dollars you know that's more than the value of all the mls franchises combined 
maybe close to the value of all of the NHL franchises combined. Right. It's the just entire astounding. League. Yeah, it, it's just an astounding amount of value creation. And Michael has largely done that, Michael Rubin, through essentially partnering with leagues and rights holders in the case of licensed merchandise, acquiring some of the key part properties like in the trading card space tops and really dominating those markets. I think what's going to be interesting to see going forward is how big a play they're going to make in the betting space and whether the betting ecosystem is a lot different than some of those other categories we discussed. So I think that's going to be the big question mark going forward. Now, the other interesting wrinkle, like we always talk about with these funding sources, is where the money's coming from. And this particular round was led by Clear Lake Capital, and close observers of the industry will note that this is the same entity that is a primary backer of Todd Boldy's purchase earlier this year of Chelsea. And so this is another major financial firm that has come in and really targeting sports as an instrument for growth for themselves. Yeah, I mean, this is just, again, further validation of sports as a great place for private equity and in this case a further validation of fanatics like what michael rubin has done and i believe going forward at least some of the statements coming out of there have been you know we want to use the money for m a again i suspect they'll use some of the money to get the betting business up and running yep. there'll be other initiatives that they'll want to pursue around trading cards so they do have a while they don't necessarily need the money eric i think they are going to put it to use and michael's got big ambitions to continue to grow this yeah the betting piece as you allude to though that's really going to be the interesting play there because so many of the other realms that he's had the opportunity to play in whether it be the merchandise or the trading cards and so forth there's been a lot of exclusivity there and he's been able either by force or by natural circumstance to create exclusive lane for himself it's not going to be that way in any given state that he is able to operate in from a betting standpoint that there's going to be a shared situation you've got a lot of incumbent brands certainly FanDuel, DraftKings, caesars betmgm and the like come to mind here and it's going to be a very different sort of competitive arena for for michael and fanatics going into that business Absolutely. And in New Jersey alone, Eric, as you well know, living there, there's more than 20 operators, betting operators that are licensed in New Jersey. And when you think about the league side of the equation, particularly the NBA and MLB, I believe each of them has more than 15 authorized sports betting operator partners. So the leagues have largely gone to a non-exclusive approach in the context of partnering with sports books. So there is a lot of competition in that space. I think what Fanatics is essentially hoping or expecting is that their relationships with 90 million plus customers already in their database and through their other businesses is going to give them a marketing advantage. And I do think that's true. On the other hand, it's not only marketing expenditures that are becoming challenging for some of these operators. It's all the bonuses that they have to give customers. It's all the offers. It's not just the marketing spend, but it's some of the free plays and other things that fanatics may have to do as well. And it's a different set of players that he needs to, Michael in particular, needs to really build relationships with. So much of his success is that he's really been able to forge very deep and meaningful business relationships with team owners, league commissioners, league executives, and the like, and the folks that really drive those other elements of the business. In these betting arena, these things are overseen by a head of gaming and betting or, you know, a state legislator, what have you. These are, it's a different cast of characters and folks who are not making their living every day in and around sports. And so it's going to be a different sort of folks that Michael's going to need to make relationships with and build bridges. 
And that uh, is something that will be a challenge as it is for everybody. I'm sure Fanatics will have the right team in place to tackle that. But I believe that Fanatics was an applicant for a New York license. They were. And actually did not get a New York license. And so it's not always as smooth sailing when you're talking about these regulated environments as it is necessarily just expanding to another couple of other sports teams you want to sign up or another league. Right. Well, much more to come on that front, and, and certainly even just from a fundraising standpoint, this doesn't seem like it's going to be the end of the road here for Michael Rubin and Fanatics, so much more to come on that front. But turning our attention now to the hot stove uh, league and the uh, offseason free agent and signing activity in and around Major League Baseball, I've referenced this in the look at a couple of weeks ago and was very curious as to what we were going to see, particularly under the prism of the new CBA with between the league and the players being in place and a lot of revenue growth, and this could be something that was going to resemble a more normal, robust level of activity. Indeed, that has manifested the case, and we've already had a number of big deals, whether it be Justin Verlander, the Astros pitcher, going to the Mets, Jacob deGrom, the big Mets pitcher, going to the Texas Rangers, Trey Turner going to the Philadelphia Phillies, on and on the list goes. But the foremost prize in the entire free agent market was Aaron Judge, the new American League single-season home run record holder, nearly won the Triple Crown this year, won the most valuable player in the American League, on and on the list goes. Well, he has agreed to a nine-year, $360 million deal to stay with the Yankees and really sets a number of new records on a number of levels. This is a new average salary record for a position player. This also sets the mark for the largest free agent contract ever. There's only been two larger contracts, one with Mike Trout with the Angels, the other with Mookie Betts with the Dodgers, but those were both extensions and they were both under contract when they signed their deals. So for a straight free agent, this is also the largest deal ever and really keeps in either the most popular player or the second most popular player in baseball, depending on how you feel about Shohei Otani, keeps Aaron Judge in New York and in the biggest media market and with the most popular team in the league. That is good news, not only for Aaron Judge and for Yankees fans, but really for MLB overall, because likely it keeps the Yankees in the hunt for the next several years. Yep. Uh, they need to potentially add a few other pieces to the puzzle to get over the hump and beat the Astros, but they're going to be competitive most likely. And I think that's great for ratings, great for fan interest. It's also a good sign in respect to this recent CBA and what was going to happen as that deal was signed and finished. Would we see a lot of robust spending on players? And at least up to now, it seems like we are again, this is not representative of the full league, but that is a good sign as well. Yeah, and really just, again, keeps the key figure and somebody who really kind of transcends just baseball and moving into sort of that broader sort of pop culture realm, keeps him with this big media market and this hallowed franchise. And for him personally, anything he does from an endorsement standpoint, a collector standpoint, being a lifetime Yankee, and this really locks him in essentially for the rest of his career as a New York Yankee, puts him in line to be enshrined in Monument Park at Yankee Stadium and so on and so forth. That really sort of not only continues, but really accelerates that sort of career trajectory in that business sense. Yeah, he seems to be the modern day, again, whether it's Mantle, DiMaggio, Jeter, all through the, the decades, there had right. been sort of a, a Yankee star that kind of stands out. And that's certainly great for Judge in terms of his endorsements. What I wonder, Eric, is whether he will start getting more involved in, in ownership of businesses as many athletes are doing, like the right. Kevin Durant of the world and others. I have not necessarily noticed point. A, a lot of that from Aaron, but 
now that he's got kind of a nine-year runway here in New York, obviously he's incredibly marketable. He's got great endorsement deals, but I do wonder whether at some point he will start looking at those kind of other equity ownership opportunities as well. And then looking at this from a sort of health of the sports situation that, yes, there's going to be some outliers at the bottom end of the economic scale, your A's and Pirates and Reds and Marlins and so forth. But, you know, a lot of teams out there spending and making moves and uh, really reflecting the overall health of the game. We had a situation where baseball really sprung back from a revenue standpoint from the pandemic this year. Rob Manfred said during the World Series that they were looking to close this year at nearly $11 billion in industry revenue, which basically puts them back to where they were, even a little bit beyond where they were prior to the pandemic. They just had this big $900 million sale for their remaining BAMTECH equity to Disney that we talked about last week. And so there's a lot of new money flowing into the game, and there's a lot of levers within the CBA, whether they be the jersey patches or some of the new sponsorship uh, components that the league is now exercising, that there's a lot of health and a lot of money flowing into the game. And these kind of signings, like what we're seeing with Judge, really reflect that. There certainly is, Eric. Then from my perspective, the question is, are they going to invest some of that money and some of that wealth going forward here and making sure they continue to be relevant for the next generation of fans? What kind of fan engagement opportunities are they going to capitalize on? Again, how do they expand the kind of media uh, opportunities that baseball can take care of. So yes, I do think they're in a good place from a current economic standpoint. We've always talked about some darker clouds on the horizon, given sort of the demographics of the fan base, some of the attendance challenges, the need to reach younger viewers. So baseball now has the resources to really address those, and we'll see if they do. Well, one of those pieces of fan engagement that really needs to be addressed is the regional sports network model, of which they are perhaps as exposed as anybody, given baseball's nature as an everyday sport. And we had some pretty significant developments this past week with Sinclair Broadcast Group and Diamond Sports, Sinclair subsidiary that runs the Valley Sports RSN. A couple of big changes there where Diamond Sports has sort of moved to further distance itself from Sinclair from a day-to-day oversight standpoint. Within that sort of structural shift, they've brought in David Preschlack, uh, the former NBC Sports and ESPN executive, to run Diamond Sports as its CEO. David Preschlack was already on the Diamond Sports Board of Advisors. They'd been brought in this past spring with a number of other folks, senior industry figures to sort of help guide Diamond Sports, as they were particularly as it was moving into a direct to consumer realm and the recent debut of Bally Sports Plus. But now David Preschlack has come in as a day to day operational role and he's really going to be the guy going forward to try to pivot this operation and bring it to a healthier standpoint. And it's important to note that not only is uh, Diamond Sports really exposed as anybody into cord cutting and all the macro level shifts that everybody in sports media is facing, but this particular entity just reported a $1.2 billion loss in its most recent quarter due primarily to a write down on the value of its assets. So this is an entity that is in the throes of some pain and transition, and David Preschlack's going to be the guy to try to re-steer the ship here. Yeah, I don't know David personally, but he obviously has a great reputation and certainly now has his hands full. And what's tricky about the situation is he's got a number of key constituents who he's got to convince to work with him to build this going forward when all of those constituents are feeling some pain themselves. For example, There's a whole bunch of debt on this business. So there are lenders that he's got to deal with. There are the leagues 
which on the one hand, don't want this entity to fail, but on the other hand, don't necessarily want to hand over a whole bunch of rights to him. There are the teams which are so, you know, reliant on this revenue stream, yet they are concerned that the, you know, the gravy train could end. And then you've got Sinclair in the mix. And then you've got the fans who don't necessarily want to pay huge amounts of money for new subscription services when they were getting the product for a lot less before. So he really does his, have his hands full. And this is going to be as much about sharing a vision and getting everybody to buy into it as it is trying to beat someone over the head with a club. It's really about getting everybody on the same page, which is not going to be easy. Definitely not. He really is fighting, you know, a war on multiple fronts here. And you raise a great point about the subscribers, the consumers, because they're asking $20 a month for this product. And what you get for that $20 a month really varies in a lot of markets, depending on the right situation that they've been able to strike in a given market, given what teams are in that market and how the deal making to date has gone here. And then on that deal-making front, you know, on the B2B level, the leagues are in very different places that the NBA did a deal, you know, pretty quickly in terms of digital rights and conveying a lot of that in their deal to Sinclair and in turn Diamond. NHL then came along. Baseball's in a very different place that Rob Manfred and and the owners there sort of thinking they want to kind of go it on their own a little bit and try to have much more of an active hand in terms of how the direct-to-consumer situation particularly manifests itself in that relationship relationship with a fan and you've got a handful of clubs five individual clubs that have done one-off deals on their own with uh, diamond for digital rights but we haven't seen anything from a league level because again baseball's got a very different vision on how they want to do this d2c piece than does basketball or hockey and so there's a lot of herding cats here that has to be done yeah no i would guess that one of david's probably first calls or meetings as the new head of this uh, organization would be with Rob and the MLB and trying to figure out how they collaborate on more rights, especially as we think about the upcoming baseball season as potentially being the next big opportunity to generate a new set of subscribers. That will not be an easy discussion or negotiation. But on the other hand, I don't think, at least in my opinion, either party can afford (laughs) the Diamond Group to fail. So I think they have to figure something out, but but there was definitely some tension in the relationship previously, and perhaps you know David's involvement now will will break through some of that. And then in the midst of all of this, there's still this sort of broader vision that Sinclair has previously conveyed in terms of trying to turn this whole regional sports model, particularly on a digital D2C front, in terms of a much more gamified experience and having much more of a lean-in type of thing, incorporation with betting and advanced stats and different alternate presentations and the like, and really sort of trying to elevate that product besides just, you know, having a situation where your local team is on during primetime on a weeknight kind of thing, which is a lot of what it's been heretofore, and really trying to update that product and move it that much more into the 21st century. And so that's yet another thing that David's got to be thinking about. It certainly seems like a good idea to me, Eric, but when you're under duress in terms of just kind of keeping the business going and That's dealing with saying, lenders, yeah. it, 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 it's very difficult. But I do think that is one path. Can you create more gamification? Can you create really interesting in-play betting opportunities? That's one path. I think the other path that is more of a marketing path is can you tie the purchase of that subscription to other benefits from the team? tickets, other things, loyalty clubs. We saw a little bit of that in the, in the Nesson case 
as an experiment. In essence, not the part of the Sinclair Group, but I do think there are some innovations here around streaming, betting, joint marketing that could be very helpful. But when you're in the fight for survival, some of those new things are, are harder to implement. And there has been some individual team level instances of that that I think are very interesting and very promising. Cleveland Cavaliers immediately come to mind where they were, they've been granting Bally Sports subscriptions as part of a season ticket purchase and really sort of making it a part of an overall notion of fandom that you're all in on the Cavs in every possible way. But again, that really requires deep levels of partnership and not just from a straight contractual business construct, but on a, on a personal level as well, that you're really sort of marching arm in arm to market and really engaging with that individual fan very much on a one-to-one level and very much the same sort of way. And again, how Diamond is able to do that now in this new structure, it's going to be very telling because those kinds of partnerships and elements, I think there's a real way there to try to make one plus one equal three. Absolutely. And again, it may come down a little bit to the personalities and to the personal relationships. And again, my, totally. my guess is that's part of the reason David was elevated and Sinclair is taking a bit of a less active role because there just may have been some headbutting going on there. And I do think there needs to be a shared vision of this. And again, it's still not going to be easy because cord cutting is going to continue and consumers are going to be resist paying that kind of price for a digital subscription service. We've talked about the proliferation of digital subscription services and fans getting to the point where how many can they buy? But I think these are the most valuable, in some cases, rights, these local fandom-related rights. So I, I do think they have an opportunity, but it's not going to be easy. Well, much more to come on that front, particularly as we circle around through the holidays and head towards the beginning of the next baseball season. But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to do a bit of a look ahead in the space and see what else is catching our eye. And Chris, I will start with you. Eric, I noticed this week that Open Doors announced a capital raise of $20 million. We had Blake on the program, yep. Lawrence, about a year ago, I think it's been. Obviously, an NIL-focused business continuing to grow and gain support. What I really wonder as we look forward is how this NIL market is going to be affected by, for example, the CFP expansion. I do think with more teams in the CFP, we're going to see more sponsor money, which is going to be more NIL money. So in that sense, I think there's a bright future. The countervailing thing to look for is with the new NCAA president that is expected to come on board sometime in early 2023, are there different kinds of regulations that get imposed that maybe rein in the free-for-all we see right now in NIL. So I think in many ways, there's a lot of momentum in the NIL space, and there's both good things that could happen and maybe not so good things that could happen from the perspective of generating revenues. And, and we'll see how all of that shakes out over the next 12 to 24 months. Absolutely. And, and Blake is indeed one of the rising stars of the industry, and he and Open Doors have done very well getting an important foothold in this space. But the other piece of this is to what degree, if at all, the federal government in the United States gets involved. That You still have a lot of leaders in college sports asking on top of the NCAA for additional government level help in trying to get a clear roadmap on this whole space. Whether or not that actually happens, particularly now that we're going to have a divided Congress from a party standpoint, that very much remains to be seen, but this is yet another element that's going to shape this whole emergence and, and maturation of NIL. Absolutely. Eric. As we've talked about before, you've got the CFP, you've got the NCAA, you've got individual state 
regulations. Potentially, you have federal regulations. So again, the landscape is still a bit uncertain. But once the horse is out of the barn or whatever the expression is, it's it's very hard to, to kind of bring it back. From my standpoint, keeping an eye on Genius Sports, this is a company we've talked a lot about. It's been a bumpy ride for them this year where their stocks down by quite a bit as many publicly traded companies in and around betting and sports data and so forth. They've all sort of taken a pretty big hit this year. They're still in a, a loss-making mode operationally as they try to sort of build a growth trajectory, but they've got this big rights deal with the NFL and they're really leveraging it in an additional way now, first in Canada and now in the United States through Caesars where they're picked up some video rights that they've got a watch and play product watch and bet where they can really incorporate this licensed low latency video from the NFL and incorporate it with the betting product feeding off of this official data feed that Genius is supplying here. And again, this is another situation where they can really leverage their rights and, and have a an exclusive proprietary thing that other sports books that are not partnered with them in this way can do here. And, and on a macro level, when we've seen, you know, sort of a plateauing of overall betting activity from a nationwide standpoint and in a number of key states where you had a big initial hockey stick run of growth and now it's sort of you know flattened out a little bit here in, in more recent months having something that can help to potentially regenerate the market could be very impactful absolutely eric and you may remember we had karsten coral on the podcast probably eight or nine months ago karsten's the ceo of sport radar the, the big yep. competitor to genius and one of the things that stood out about my, you know, our conversation with Karsten was him saying that in Europe, 80% of the betting happens during the game, where 20% is before, where right. in the U.S., that fraction or that uh, ratio was sort of the opposite. I do think if we start seeing more in-game betting in the U.S., that really could be a catalyst for a lot of future growth. It's been talked about. Bet off of this integration with the video. Exactly. And that obviously relates to what Genius is doing. It may relate to the RSN discussion we just had yep. with those rights locally. There could be an entirely different revenue stream that gets created through that watch and play or watch and bet product. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only. It does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.